Take a network break. Pumpkin Spice Virtual Donuts are back on the menu for those who don't care what other people think. We've got stories today on Nokia, Pika 8, a hot mess of security vulnerabilities, and more. Our sponsor today is Juniper. Juniper's Abstra intent-based solution simplifies the deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two, delivers automation and continuous validation of your data center network in multi-vendor environments. The result is savings on downstream costs and exponentially more value from your network investments. You can find out more at juniper.net slash packet pushers slash abstra. Packet pushers is all one word there. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with AppNetta, where we discuss how to measure user experience and troubleshoot problems happening somewhere between the desktop and the home router. And last but not least, join the Packet Pushers on Tuesday, September 28th. We're doing a one-hour live stream with Glueware. We're going to dive into how to make network automation a reality without you having to become a coder. You can sign up for that at packetpushers.net slash livestream. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, you've often heard me talk here and sort of give uh, Ansible and Python a, a qualified sort of thumbs down up like somewhere in the middle like i think that ansible and is kind of like it's an answer but it's not a very good answer it's not a very strategic answer and so glueware is one of the products there are others but glueware is one of the products which i believe for most people would be a better way of heading into automation and we've actually i actually managed to convince them to have a whole section on uh why glueware is better than python and ansible so that's just 10 minutes <laughs> It's six, 10-minute segments, so please come along. I'd love to see you in the event and uh, see what you think about it. Yeah, packetpressures.net slash livestream, free to attend. All right, let's jump into some news. Nokia has announced new routing silicon FP5 version. It's targeted at the service provider market. The company says FP5 supports 800 gig routing interfaces. They're promising a 75% reduction in power consumption and the ability to deliver line rate encryption at up to 1.6 terabits per second. Yeah, so lots of interesting things about this. We sort of, um, and there's nothing like a good silicon release to get me a little bit excited. <laughs> Can't get on. So, you know, we're all about the software, but, you know, still got a, that soft spot for hardware, really. It's a 4.8 terabit per second chip or network processor, as they call it, or, you know, whatever you want to call that type of thing. Uh, different vendors call them different things. I'm not sure quite why they're not all the same. It's a 2.5 dimensional system in a package construct, which if you're a ASIC packaging nerd, you'd be into. So uh, one of the other interesting things about it is it actually supports 100 gig SIRDES. So this is... Um, the capability of where, say, in 100 gig, it actually consists of four 25 gig surdeses bonded together into four channels to give you a 100 gig Ethernet interface. This is supporting 100 gig surdes chips. And that means, of course, that you can clock up to 800 gigabit per second on the interfaces so that you can have eight by 100s to get yourself to 800 gigabits per second. They make a big deal about the idea of this chip supports 800 gig interfaces in high density capacity optimized configuration. Basically, there's a bunch of pre-standards coming out of the IEEE, uh, the IEEE 802.1 committee and the Ethernet Alliance is sort of like, you know, the pre-meeting meeting. You know, I've gone on about the pre-meeting meeting at the Ethernet Alliance, Drew. Of course. Um, you have, yes. We know your feelings. Yeah. So the Ethernet Alliance has kind of agreed what it's going to be and then they'll take it to the IEEE because the IEEE is so dysfunctional. And if you watch the Ethernet Alliance, the 800 gig standard is sort of moving down a very predictable path, which is good um, and looks like we'll have it eventually. It doesn't really do a lot for most enterprises. It's going to be for telcos uh, where they need to get high-speed connectivity between sites. Very big for optical. So this ability to clock up the optical backplanes is going to be very important. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of things that have to come together here, but we're sitting on the edge of the cusp of the 5G rollout and the necessary backbones that are going to connect those. And 
the way that telcos spend their money is these big, fat, constipated globs of budget, and they're going to roll out these optical networks and then sit on them, sit on them like a chicken on an egg for twenty years, and expect them. Instead of going to like you know the obvious thing, which is just this continuous upgrade process, that's not at all what they're talking about here. So, I think it's good for Nokia to get this chip out. It's good that it's got the capabilities. Um, there's questions I have, but I, I wanted to get your reactions first, Drew. Yeah, well, obviously, 800 gig is a big headline. I don't know that anyone's actually doing it yet, but Nokia is sort of putting their stake in the ground saying, hey, service providers, come to us because we can be there for you when you're ready. Uh, they also mentioned they're calling it a fully programmable ASIC. They didn't provide any details in the press release or anything that I could find online other than what it sounds like is it's microcode updates as opposed to something like a P4. Yeah, this this was one of the questions that I have. They talk a little bit about the idea of microcode updates, which sort of suggests that the programmable forwarding plane isn't so much programmable dynamically. So that is, it wouldn't necessarily support P4, although they don't mentioned P4 in any of the documentation. I've been through about 20 pages right. of documentation. Doesn't mention P4 programmability, and maybe we could talk to catch up with Nokia on that. Um, yeah. The suggestion here is that the forwarding plane can, is programmable through the use of microcode updates, which sort of suggests that some parts of the forwarding plane have FPGA functions, and that would suggest that it's not a genuine ASIC in that sense in that some part of this is left to be programmable in the sense that if I load an FPGA code to it, then it becomes an, a, an ASIC. I like that idea in some ways because we are still potentially going to see new frame formats and packet formats coming out. You know, like what do we do with headers? Are we going to see customers wanting to do dynamic header modifications like we saw with the integrated telemetry trend that sort of didn't go very far? Uh, is that something that we want? Um, is this uh, and what I don't understand is is the use of this idea of microcode in an FPGA, if that's a correct way of looking at it, in an ASIC. How does that compare with say a hardwired ASIC that's got flexible programming? I think the idea of an ASIC, which is does it all in hardwired, is going to be better than one that's got FPGAs. But I couldn't quite finger on why without having a detailed discussion with an expert. Yeah, we do need to reach out to Nokia and see if we can get briefed on that. Yeah, the other big claim is that 75% power reduction, which is to me kind of a staggering number considering they're also talking about 800 gig throughput. Yeah, and the way it's written, you sort of think, oh, this new chip's much more power efficient. And then I twigged. We've seen this from other vendors where they run around going power efficiency, and you realize what they're actually saying is what used to take eight devices before now takes one. We saw this with the uh, introduction of the latest Broadcom and Denovium chipsets, and they were bragging about you know massive power reductions. Basically, what it comes down to is when you um, increase the terabit per second of the ASIC, the radix of the networks underneath them can collapse and save up to 75% power, right? So we saw this in various chip designs where we were running leaf spines with 10 gigs at the edge and we needed four leaves and two spines to get that port density and that forwarding performance. And if you move up to the next chip, you can replace those six switches with one. So I think that's what's happening here. Okay, and they're just tallying up the replacements as power savings, which I guess technically is true. Yeah, just you've got to see the bigger picture. The, right. When you're talking about the ASIC and then you say, I can get power savings, I think mentally we focus on the ASIC being more power efficient, but I don't think that's what's actually happening here. You're, at the Instinctively, it goes the other way. Other things that I liked, uh, they talk also about any type of uh, line rate encryption. They called it AnySec. So I think what they're saying mm -hmm. there is ubiquitous line rate any second encryption per services without impacting performance. I think 
when I dug into this, one thing I noted is that most MacSec encryption is not done in the ASIC. It's actually done in the NPU uh, at the edge. And that allows the encryption to be done without affecting the ASIC. And it simplifies the ASIC and makes it cheaper. But it appears that what Nokia has done here is actually doing the encryption in the ASIC. If that's the case, uh-huh. then that is a definite advance because the MPUs are expensive uh, and also very power hungry and often made with low technology. So they're very old technology and running the SIRDES is out on the line card. And But then later on, in the, they talk about an external Mac ASIC with QOS pre-processing, pre-classification, pre-buffering, and first level DDoS protection. Now that sounds to me like similar to what Juniper's doing with its HBM. So the Trio chipsets of and various of the Broadcom chipsets support a HBM uh, bus so that you can stack out uh, high bandwidth memory modules. And you can also put uh, co-processors in here as well. So there's a lot of interesting things to explore. If you're interested in investigating this, I'd say if you're going to be bothered with the details here, um, there's lots of questions to be asked. And I imagine there's probably several uh, several boxes of virtual documentation that you can read to understand all the features behind this. Yep. So we've got a link in the show notes if you want to start your journey digging into uh, new silicon from Nokia. Yeah, it's exciting. And I think this will be the last of the silicon announcement, which we've seen Anovium, Broadcom, Cisco, Juniper with its new range of silicon, and now Nokia. I don't think we'll see much more silicon announcements. We talked about the supply chain. Uh, and the thing to remember about ASICs, and this is a key factor, is the ASICs are actually designed with the manufacturing process in mind. So when you go to design an ASIC, the first decision that you make is who's going to make it and what is their fabrication process. You actually decide your manufacturer before you start. And this is why Intel will struggle to get into networking because their manufacturing process uh, is different to the one that TSMC or Samsung is using or the manufacturers Uh in China. And so the chances that in the middle of the supply chain difficulty that you're going to redesign your chip to go onto a different substrate technology is not very high. I think that's a big ask. Yeah. So important to realize that any, you know, changing that horse now would just be like, you've just spent five (laughs) years designing a chip. You spent, you know, two, three, 400 million bringing it to market. And now you want me to redesign it just so it can be manufactured by Intel. That's a hard decision to make. Yep. That's right. All right, moving on. Pika 8, they make the uh, network OS that runs on white box hardware. They're going head-to-head against Cisco DNA Center with a new pricing model that provides you a block of software switches when you license their AmpCon network controller. Uh, The Pika 8 network OS is called Picos. It can run on white box hardware from Dell, Edgecore, and other manufacturers. The big deal here is they're offering you a big, low starting price of just under $14,000. That gets you the AmpCon controller and 10 Picos OS switch licenses. Yeah, so this idea that... uh disaggregated networking that you can buy white box and then run SDN on top was originally the vision that we talked about a lot back in 2010, you know, between 2010 and 2015. It didn't mm-hmm. really end up emerging. The brands have sort of ended up uh, in control of the whole situation, I would think. Do you agree with that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Things like ACI, uh, NSX, they kind of stepped in and said, yeah, we'll take it from here. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for coming up with the ideas, but we can't possibly let customers make up their own minds. So I do sort of see this as a bit of a throwback to that era. And Pika 8 have been plugging away at this fairly steadily for a long period of time. We've had them here a couple of times. I think the key thing to take out of this is, one, if you don't need a complex campus, then this could fit your needs. So if you've got a fairly simple, I want VLANs, I want to do SDN, I want a simple overlay, and I'm not 
you know, looking to supercharge my operational environment, you know, something, <laughs> you know, then this is the thing that you want. It doesn't have all the wackadoodle features that you're probably not going to use anyway, which was the first thing I liked. Um, the second thing is, you know, and I'm talking here like NAC, dynamic micro-segmentation by flow identification, um, AI ops. We're seeing a lot of things where data is fed into an AI ops so that it automatically starts to do things on your network for you if, you know, if that's important to you. Um, we've also seen people bond into the campus portfolio machine-based, machine learning-based threat detection, and they take flow data coming out of the network, and then they can fingerprint flows and then they can detect malware or whatever in the network itself and start to add on features like that. Now, if that's features that you need, and I want to be careful here and say, don't buy these things just because you think you need them. Buy them because you need them. It is my firm belief that you should only buy exactly what you need. And if you need the new features later, then go and buy them and then throw out the old thing and start again. You'll have saved a whole lot more money instead of, you know, you don't buy a, a Ferrari-style bus just because you think you might have 12 kids. You're not sure if you'll have 12 kids, but you think you might. You know, it's always possible. Don't do that. Uh, but otherwise, it's um, it seems reasonably priced. The fact that they put pricing in the press release is a bit of a signal to me. Did you notice that? Oh, yes. Very clear signal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very much coming at that Cisco price tag. Although I will say, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you're not getting things like uh, machine learning, AI analytics, a lot of automation, micro-segmentation, that kind of thing. That does not come uh, with this uh, AmpCon controller. The controller does give you things like zero-touch provisioning, centralized configuration and management, OS updates, inventory, and licensing, but it's not a fully-blown sort of DNA center, SD access, or Juniper Mist, what we talked about with their EVP and VXLAN campus offering, where you're getting more automation and more yeah. magical stuff on top. Kitchen sinks, cold beer holders, automated fridge technology, you know, that this is right. you know, that, this is not that. that. This but, is definitely know, the not ten, that. The ten switch starter pack starts at fourteen thousand dollars or so, um, it, which is pretty interesting. And they also have software switches, so you can actually start a start setting it up. You can actually play with it as just a virtual thing, which I thought as well. And they you can buy your switches from wherever. And one of the things that I that struck me about this is that they do a lot of marketing around this is better as che this is cheaper than Cisco and as good as Cisco. And mm -hmm. I was sort of going like, uh, you know, do you really want to say that? So, and then I realized that that's exactly what Arista did and it worked out pretty well for them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I guess it did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so maybe, you know, so maybe pitching as a Cisco alternative is a viable strategy, you know? And then of course, as Arista does now, they've changed their strategy, but now that they've got traction and customers and the brand is, is going up market as a premium brand, you know? Uh, you don't right. see them sort of saying like, oh yeah, no, you don't see them saying now like, we're the Cisco that you really wanted to have sort of stuff with it's much more that, oh, we've got market leading features, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I feel like positioning it as an alternative to DNA center is a bit of a stretch considering that they lacking a lot of the features that you'll get with more of a full-blown uh, fabric solution. Uh, but if you are, as you mentioned, looking for a low cost campus network you don't need all the bells and whistles. You just need to be able to get it up and running and have a centralized place to manage it all. Then this is maybe worth a look. And at a starting price of 14K, that includes the controller that and 10 software switches. That's not bad. Yeah, I think, you know, and then you go to Dell and you buy the switches that you want. They don't. Right. They made a big deal about the, the licensing not being some mystical incantation revolving around <laughs> I mean, specialist trained engineers who know how to work out 
Cisco licensing, which is a, is a, is a there is there is something to yeah. that. I, I really think there is something to yeah, that. I was going to say there's a bit of a sharp jab, but it's true. People <laughs> complain to me all the time about how much time they're wasting on calculating licensing for zero gain. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, so links in the show notes if you're interested and want to find out more. We'll move on. Cisco has released a tranche of 31 security patches, including several for vulnerabilities with high severity ratings. At the top of the list is a patch for remote code execution vulnerability in Cisco's Catalyst wireless controllers. There's a flaw in the CapWap protocol that could let an unauthenticated attacker remotely execute arbitrary code and either get admin privileges or just crash the controller. Uh, nothing surprising here. Uh, Cisco does release its security vulnerabilities in a batch. Uh, 31 bugs, but I think the challenge here is that more than a dozen of them are rated as a high severity score or worse. So mm-hmm. Cisco continues its trend of producing unsafe software, in my opinion, and then patching it afterwards and saying, you know, sorry, customers, too bad we didn't do a good job, but here, go out and patch it. It's your fault now for not patching it, right? Uh, what, right. Which is which is still, you know, it's 2022. Let's 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 move on. Let's let's make our software start. And I think, and these are, some of them are quite extraordinary, like SD-WAN, Software Privesk, SD-WAN, Software Buffer. Uh, a lot of them are actually in the control planes. And if you can compromise those control planes, you can take over the entire SD-WAN. Really not where we should be at this point in the cycle. And, you know, like I said, over 32 of them. So, they're, sorry, yeah, 31. Bleeping computer, yeah. yeah, Bleeping Computer pulled out uh, one of the bugs that, targets iOS XE devices where if the remote attacker gets on to a device, they can alter or delete the configuration. So that would be a lot of fun. And honestly, it's it's well past time that Cisco demonstrated that it was doing something about security. And this would suggest that by and large in their SDN tools, especially this time, um, they're still really not doing a good job of addressing that. And that's where my criticism is. Not so much on the devices, although there is some vulnerability down in the iOS XE code this time around seems to be nearly all iOS XE, but a lot of stuff actually happening. Just, I, I really feel like it's past time for these things to be addressed. Cisco, Cisco's a leading, you know, probably doing a lesser job than most. Of course, Microsoft even worse, of course, but there you go. Right. I mean, I think we tend to target Cisco and Microsoft, one, because they have the market share, but two, uh, they're also big enough to... I think do a better job of getting their arms around. Well, they around both charge enough, software. right? It's not like you, you sort of look at some of these IoT vulnerabilities. You go like, well, you know, it was a thirty dollars device, you know, or a fifty dollars mm-hmm. device. Kind, mm-hmm. you know, like, but when you paid, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and then you paid twenty five thousand dollars a year for a maintenance contract and a software license subscription, you kind of expect it to work and to be secure. You don't sort of expect to see. Uh, this number of vulnerabilities in fairly basic areas. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like that Italian sports car where you paid a lot of money for it and then you're taking it to the shop constantly as well. So you get it on both Yeah, ends. it's like Tesla's actually. Tesla's another one. Every uh, I read a research <laughs> report about uh, Tesla owners and something like 70% of Tesla owners re- reported a defect on the Tesla at delivery time, but they still love their cars. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> So there's a, you know, most customers, most of the time receive their brand new, very expensive Teslas with a manufacturer, a visible manufacturing defect that a customer can see, that the owner can see, but they still report as being loving the brand. So maybe that's what we're seeing here. It could be. That's a great trick if you can pull it off. 
All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Juniper Appstra. They have an intent-based solution that simplifies the deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two. They deliver automation and continuous validation of your data center network in multi-vendor environments, which means you save on downstream costs and exponentially get more value from your network investments. Appstra sets up net the network based on your business requirements. It ensures the network is provisioned accurately and alerts you when deviations occur. This automated validation process eliminates human errors that can lead to security vulnerabilities because of misconfigurations. Appster also optimizes your day two operations because you get enhanced visibility, intent-based analytics, and root cause analytics so you can quickly identify and resolve issues, which dramatically reduces your mean time to resolution. They've got multi-vendor support to provide the vendor abstraction required to effectively manage a heterogeneous vendor environment, which removes the steep learning curve of learning multiple management tools eliminates tool proliferation and reduces the complexity of deploying data center equipment. As a result, Appster provides up to 80% improvements in operational efficiency, 70% improvements in MTTR, and 90% improvements in time to deliver. Customers using Appster include Yahoo, T-Mobile, and Belastic. If you want to find out more, go to juniper.net slash packetpushers slash Appstra. That's juniper.net slash packetpushers slash Appstra. We thank Juniper for being a sponsor. Uh, sticking with security, there is a Mac OS vulnerability that could allow a remote attacker to trick users into running arbitrary files. It was discovered by an independent security researcher, and the flaw takes advantage of how the Mac processes internet location files. Yeah, and th this was actually the first in a flurry of security issues around Apple this week. The security Twitter was absolutely all in a kerfuffle and throwing their skateboards all over the place and, you know, flapping their, their overly long shirts. That's harsh, throwing their skateboards. Yeah, yeah well, that's, you that's know. Harsh. Most security professionals act like a bunch of teenagers in a skate park going, look at me, look at me. You know, <laughs> I just pulled off a 360 degree spin, aren't I great? And so what we actually saw was sort of this thing being announced. And then we had a bunch of security press latching onto something that was a state sponsored attack. Now that's not this particular one that Drew's referring to. So that created a lot of press. And then just as we come into the end of the week, there's been two or three security researchers sort of just going public with announcements. They've taken... They found vulnerabilities in Apple products, iOS or in uh, Safari or whatever, and announced them, reported them to Apple's bug bounty program. And I, I, it, one person here uh, who is a well-known security researcher, he wrote, I want to share my frustrating experience participating in the era of Apple security bounty program. I've reported zip four zero-day vulnerabilities this year between March 10 and May 4. And as of now, three of them are still present in the latest iOS version 15. And one was fixed in 14%, but Dapple decided to cover it up and not list it on the security content page. When I confronted them, they apologized, assured me it happened due to a processing issue, and promised to list it on the security content page of the next update. There were three releases since then, and they broke their promise each time. So what he's highlighting here is, is not so much that there are vulnerabilities in Apple iOS and Apple Mac OS. That's a given as much as anything else. The, the weakness here is that Apple's bug bounty program is A, not fixing them, and the administration of the program is doing it in such a way to offside the people that it needs to get help from. Uh -huh. And that's a signal of a dysfunctional corporate organization. It's very concerning to me as somebody who um, is sort of a believer in the Apple security posture or in parts of the Apple security vision. Uh, you don't want to sort of have this corporate thing going like, Oh, you're just a you're just a security. You're not one of us, so we're not going to listen to you. Or we're not going to take you seriously or treat you like a real person. We're going to treat you as a second-rate citizen, and that's that's what I'm concerned about here. You know, part of the issue may be that you know for a long time Apple and Mac were sort of the gold standard for security, when particularly when compared to Microsoft uh, on the desktop and server OSs, where Microsoft was constantly getting hammered and Macs just skated along and nobody had to worry about security. And 
now that they're becoming more of a target, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> they haven't necessarily matured or smoothed out their, the way they deal with uh, bugs and vulnerabilities and how they report uh, and fix them. Uh, so it seems like they do have some operational maturation to do. Yeah, I think it's it's one of these things where unless the executive is involved, especially at Apple, which is very much a command and control, you know, General Tim leads the troops, you know, and Major General, you know, the second tier of the executives who are all faceless white men, you know, all looking the same and talking the same. Um, they, If they're not really behind this security thing, I get the sense that things at Apple that they don't care about just don't get cared about, except as some sort of thing that happens over here. And I do feel like the security thing might be that. And the moment, the the hallelujah moment for Apple to start taking it serious hasn't happened yet. Speaking of hallelujah moments, ransomware attacks hit ag US agriculture. Yeah, that's our next story. Uh, there are two companies in the agricultural sector in the U.S. Midwest that have been hit by cyber attacks. Uh, the most recent one took down computer systems at a company that mixes fertilizers and fulfills orders for livestock feed. That's according to Reuters. Uh, the first one that got hit, uh, they had a ransom demanded them of over $5 million. Q media stories of critical infrastructure being attacked by hackers, Drew. Of course. Well, <laughs> that's one of the funny angles on this story yeah. is that um, one of the critical, one of the ransomware gangs that attacked the first company, uh, this company, it's called uh, New Cooperative, is trying to convince the uh, ransomware gang that, hey, we're critical infrastructure. And according to your public policy, you shouldn't be attacking us, which is a weird angle. <laughs> <laughs> and not a, not an unviable angle per se, if you know what I mean. Like, um... In the sense that if you're feeding into the food chain, it's critical infrastructure. But you might recall the pipeline attack uh, that led to a political and government response, like the U.S. government, mm -hmm. the, you know, the U.S. president got up and said, we can't possibly have this. I'm directing, you know, the federal government to to do something about this. And then yes. the government processes started to slowly wind themselves into action. And the group realized that, hang on. We're starting to get the attention of the of the FBI and the NSA and the CIA, and it's not going to go well. And the group behind the attack promised that we won't attack critical infrastructure. And everybody sort of went, oh, well, well, that makes it okay then. <laughs> like, well, that, well, that's okay, right? And, uh, and of course, from if you're an, if you're an attacker, you actually want to hit, you, you've got every motivation to hit critical infrastructure because you're much more likely to get paid. Exactly. Right? And... Then, of course, you can have an argument about what's critical infrastructure. Is the grain feed that makes the meat that feeds the people, is that critical or is that just further back in the food, in the cycle, in the supply chain? Yeah, that's one of my points that it's it's strange days when uh, a victim's response is to try to convince the person attacking you, hey, I'm I'm not a good victim because uh, I don't fit into your acceptable attack policy. <laughs> that's not really a sound security strategy. I can understand them trying to do it because they're mm. scrambling for a response, but that's <laughs> trying to appeal to an attacker's <laughs> technicalities well, on the policy side isn't isn't really a good idea. Yeah, well, we saw there were some articles this week uh, where people who had turned against uh, dark matter, you know, the people who'd been doing the hacking of the previous, of the pipeline and the dark matter malware group at sort of some of the people who were the customers, you know, the middlemen there were saying that mm -hmm. they were a bunch of lousy scumbags and they used to take all of our money and they'd say one thing and do another. And I'm like, surprise, you know, <laughs> they're not exactly professional right. organizations. They're sort of pseudo professional in that they try to act like proper companies and structure themselves, but it's more like a, it's more like an amateur effort of 
at the end of the day, they have to be because they've got to be willing to walk away at any point in time. So um, I guess, and the discipline that you sort of need to say, yes, you can attack this one, but not that one, doesn't really, you know, that's not how it works. It doesn't. So, that's not how crime works. Yeah. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see, is this the event where we actually see the government go full offensive? So, you know, the, 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 the US president spoke to the Russian president where most people seem to agree that these ransomware gangs are based out of the Russian and there is the tassel approval of the Russian uh, government mm-hmm. to say, yeah, you're mm-hmm. just as long as you don't hit Russian targets, you could, you're safe. You're, you know, we're, wink and odd and that sort of stuff. If that's the case, what happens next? Does this start to escalate into something else? Um, so my take is I think these criminal gangs are trying to carve out these policies about what's an acceptable target and what isn't, not because they're so much worried about the CIA or the NSA getting involved, but it's more about uh, their local governments who have given them tacit approval to operate. If they cause too much hassle for these local governments, I think they're more likely to see consequences from them than from a foreign government. And that consequence could be, you know, a bullet in the back of the head from the local secret service. <laughs> a kinetic response, I think, is what the... A kinetic is response the is what they call it, yes. That's the trade <laughs> craft, the trade, yes. trade with. It, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, whether that plays out or not, because obviously this is tightly linked to geopolitics, the Russia, China, mm-hmm. uh, right. North Korea has obviously got a place here. Uh, U.S., the, the leadership in the U.S. is still struggling to sort of get itself back together after the disruption from the previous uh, presidency to the current presidency. Uh, there's lots of transitions going on. And so far, they haven't sort of crossed the line to cause real problems yet. You've got to wonder when, when, where the tipping point is. So like U.S. federal authorities, the FBI, the CIA, whatever, can do things like, oh, we'll try to find on the blockchain where you with the ransom went and maybe we can re- retrieve some of it. Mm-hmm. Or we can try to you know, find your operations and plant malware and disrupt them. They're not going to do things like uh, you know, black bag these people and take them to you know, black sites to, and rendition mm-hmm. them, that kind of stuff. Uh, so there are limits to what a foreign government can do to you as a criminal actor. But I, I, like I said, I think the real issue is they're more worried about if they cause too much trouble for their government sponsors, that's when the heat falls on them. Yeah, and what we're also seeing, uh, the US uh, government via its SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, actually blocked um, a crypto company from doing business with the banks because it mm-hmm. had been handling ransomware payments for various organizations. Right. And now that cryptocurrency exchange can no longer access US banks legally. Um, so those are the sorts of things that the governments do. But as we flagged before, the governments move slowly and they right. can only do big things. So this isn't a big thing. This is just taking an existing mechanism and then activating it. And the SEC is saying, you're facilitating criminal behavior because you're accepting ransomware payments. We are going to cut you off. That's a sort of a piecemeal response. So that's more of a small thing. I think it's going to take most of the governments in the G7 to agree that ransomware can't happen and for it to be aligned, and then we'll see something get fixed. But until that happens, I think we're right. going to see more and more of these. And they've got to find the right levers and right pressures to apply on the countries that are essentially allowing these ransomware gangs to operate mm. tacitly. Because what's effectively being said here to companies and to people like me, if I was working in enterprise IT, is sure, it's a problem, but there's no negative outcome. You know, And in fact, this is an opportunity for resellers and technology companies to make more money. Always, always, yes. <laughs> so this this press release, you know, 
Minnesota grain handler targeted and ransomware attack. Somewhere out there, there's a reseller making money. There's a bunch of security consultants <laughs> making money. There's a bunch of technology adventures taking advantage of the situation to sell more products and more FUD and so forth. That's not a situation where we're fixing the problem. This is a situation where this is actually helping to create the problem in a way. Fortune passes everywhere. Yeah. And we have jobs fixing this issue. <laughs> That's right. It's keeping everybody yeah. employed. This is the reason for my work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, suddenly I don't feel too good about myself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, well, that does wrap up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with AppNeta on getting local visibility into the end user experience. That's starting right now. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. So you've probably heard of the last mile problem. Today, we're going to talk about problems with the last six feet. With work from anywhere becoming commonplace, one of the hardest challenges for IT is how to measure user experience and troubleshoot problems happening somewhere between the desktop and a home router or the ISP. Our sponsor is AppNeta. They have some ideas on how to help. We're joined by Adam Edwards. He is Chief Customer Officer at AppNeta. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Can you just briefly remind us of what AppNeta does and how it collects data on end users and what you do with it? Sure. Thanks, Drew. Uh, AppNet is a network performance monitoring platform designed to give you real-time insight into the user experience from any location to any application. And since a lot of us are working from home these days, that location includes your hybrid workers or the office of one. Okay. And of course, we're talking about getting visibility at the host and you do have a host agent. Have you added new metrics or anything to particularly think about um, the host performance, wireless performance, that kind of thing? Uh, we have. Uh, we actually did so out of necessity. So when we went virtual in 2020, our teams needed to understand at a glance if a user experiencing a problem with an application uh, was connected via Ethernet or Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, in-home Wi-Fi is uh, never a guarantee these days. Uh, needed to understand if they had a VPN session that was active. In some cases, those are requirements to access core corporate apps, depending on where they live. Mm -hmm. um, if they were connected wirelessly, what that Wi-Fi client performance was. Uh, and then uh, the last aspect of the end-to-end -end, uh, is host-based metrics, like uh, what's the memory or CPU consumption on an endpoint at a given time that the user's accessing the application on, and what are those top processes, or, or what were they when the uh, issue was reported? It's, it's interesting to think that, you know, two or three years ago, we went into the office to use the internet connection that was there, and that connectivity was built at a different level usually performance, money was invested according to the need. But that transition from centralized work to distributed work means that you probably need to be thinking about distributed support, which is a key part of what AppNet is about for my money, right? This idea that all of your workers are now in a thousand, you know, if you've got a thousand workers, you're probably now in a thousand offices as a metaphor, right? And so all of a sudden you've got to monitor a thousand networks. That's fundamentally what AppNet does, right? That's right. Uh, as far as how we collect data, I mean, we've always had a combination of active and passive monitoring. So well covered at your remote site, uh, but in the case of end users, they're not at that well-managed remote location, or they may be part-time in the coming months, we all hope. Uh, so we um, added to our, what we call native monitoring point. So this lights up every end user you'd like with the same type of uh, insight that you've enjoyed at your 100 gig data center, your cloud container location, um, mm. and your remote office. So you've got that visibility right to the, the user's keyboard, essentially. Yeah, I just want to I, I make a point about something that I learned or realized just quite recently, and I feel quite dumb that I only learned it recently, is that when you move apps into public cloud or into off-premise cloud facilities, right, like Azure or AWS, 
the nature of bandwidth means that you, they actually have to have enough bandwidth to handle your needs and you need to have enough bandwidth to access them. So this is a lesson from SD-WAN is when you move to off-prem cloud, you need to have enough bandwidth to access off-prem cloud resources because they use more bandwidth than what used to happen in the office. Because in the office, you used to have a campus network, you know, or a, an MPLS, maybe with Quas or whatever. And now all of a sudden on the internet, there's a whole transition there and you need to get visibility to know, hang on, 80% of my staff have enough bandwidth, but 20% don't. Indeed. I mean, when, once you establish that the app is up and, you know, Azure rarely goes down totally, Office 365 is generally available and works, but you've got the app, the app is up and functioning. You've got the internet connecting the app uh, is functioning. And you've affirmed that the last mile, uh, either well-managed WAN, or in the case of your hybrid users, their, their last mile ISP is up. So that's, that's a lot of the service delivery chain, but troubleshooting in IT is a matter of uh, finger pointing, right? Uh, <laughs> establish the blame and then establish the fix. Um, but, but you still got this obscurity with what's going on, even within the user's 50 feet or six feet. Um, so you know, let's talk some specifics. Like what do you need as, a, as someone who can help an end user? You've got to understand not only how they're connected right now, because you rarely get a ticket when the issue is happening live, right? It's always yeah. um, my Zoom session performed poorly in my corporate webcast yesterday at 3 p.m. Go. Yeah. Right, so, and it's, so it's, this, yeah. it's this mean time to innocence. And there's two sides to mean time <laughs> to innocence. One is there's business value because if it's not the network, you can say it's not the network. But the other side is not my problem. So there's, <laughs> you, can, you can take two sides. You can take a selfish side and say, mean time to innocence means it's not my problem. It's, it's the server or it's the app or, you know, whatever. Or the other side is you're saving time on the operations control. We take, pick which one of those you like. Right. It's, it's tough to successfully have an IT career uh, with the ostrich and sand um, kind of approach. You, you have to take on that last mile, that last 10 feet, that remote office visibility, even if that's an office of one. So um, that's why we added uh, things like Wi-Fi connection detection. If the yeah. user is on an active VPN session, if they're on Wi-Fi, what is the signal quality? So you don't need to be a, an RF engineer and figure out uh, decibels and milliwatts, uh, but what is the signal strength as a percentage, something easy for users to, to understand as well. What's the link speed? What was the RSSI, mm. airtime, retransmits, even station information? So uh, we've made these available uh, both in real time and historically. And when paired with host-based metrics like memory, CPU, and then what are the top processes, that gives you that full end-to-end, -end, which you know a year ago was end-to-office. Now end-to-end -end really is that all the way to the end user view. And you've got examples here of like, you know, an end user at home was having issues, but it was only when they had a mesh network at home and it was only when they were connected to one particular point on the mesh and you were able to find that. That's right. So uh, those of us who are lucky to have a mesh network at home, that's not always a guarantee of a great user experience. So one of our, our customers had a user, an SAP user, uh, so pretty bandwidth intensive mm -hmm. uh, in certain aspects of the app. Uh, Office-based monitoring confirmed SAP was up and accessible from multiple locations, including through a, a VPN tunnel. So they, they kind of cut the problem in half and started segmenting it and, and looking at the end user's environment. Um, with the user's workstation native monitoring point, which was installed in this case on their Windows host, it revealed two large data loss events a few hours apart during the, the, the case history. And when they drilled in, they saw several events where the BSSID changed, but the channel remained the same. 
Uh, so we concluded that the radio interface the client was using was shifting back and forth uh, between one and two uh, access points. And they realized that the packet loss resolved to zero once the stabilization was there for the connection. Uh, so we just concluded that that mesh Wi-Fi performance wasn't as expected, and they just concluded that the user should revert to an Ethernet connection. So depending on the service level and the depth of troubleshooting that IT will buy into mm -hmm. for that endpoint, uh, that could have involved a client firmware upgrade. You know, Wi-Fi drivers don't always roam seamlessly, or they could have gone after the actual mesh network configuration. So um, usually that's not the case with IT unless it's an executive, um, but they, they were able to draw the line, get the user back to productivity with SAP by connecting as, uh, as they were established to. You yeah, so you solved the immediate problem, but you also know the root cause. So you could tell the user that it's a handoff problem between the different elements in your mesh network. You either yeah. replace the mesh technology because it's not very seamless handoff. It's a manual handoff process and uh, or they just wire up and and work out how to solve it later something like that that's right the user is happy because they're not sent on a wild goose chase to <laughs> calling their isp and um <laughs> you know calling their um you know their it savvy nephew to, to come troubleshoot so they oh, were i thought able it'd to be dns i would have blamed dns <laughs> often the case uh, often yeah. the case but that's another thing that you're monitoring of course is like is are the dns queries working are they latent so the client DNS monitoring gives you uh, real-time and historical monitoring into the actual DNS per server performance over time. So you can understand if uh, the client's misconfigured, uh, what those DNS server settings were, and what the end of uh, the user experience impact was. So I'm wondering, you know, all the focus that's going uh, into the work from home or work from anywhere experience, does that mean the office is now getting sort of short shrift in terms of performance management? Well, if you combine traditional remote office monitoring uh, insight with the end user insights that we've talked about here, you have the promise of end to end that was, I, I call it end to office visibility, uh, but your users aren't going to be all in the office or all at home. So you really have to light up the end user with that end to end visibility so that when they go to the office, you can look at a holistic view of all your users and understand in the context of the well-managed remote office SLA, what those users experience are. So you can understand what the known good is all the way to uh, say a switch on the floor, including your Wi-Fi performance of a independent known good quantity, you know, your enterprise level physical monitoring point that's on the floor. Uh, but you also understand as users roam through the office and they go from one access point to another, uh, what that end user roaming configurations impact is on their experience. I know in our Boston office, I used to have a, a hard time with a Zoom in a remote corner of the office and I was actually pretty close to the access point. Uh, and I'd go talk to my IT person and they were kind of at a loss. They'd, they'd log into the Ruckus controller and help me understand why your, your client's up, looks fine, Mac is there, you're authenticated, you know, come get me if it happens again. Where if you look mm -hmm. at this capability alongside the remote office, you can look at the user from an infrastructure view and understand that's up or look at a switch port, but you also get the historical performance over time. So you understand mm -hmm. what happened when and then why. I think another important part about this is it's also vendor independent in the sense that this technology works on the host. It, like the AppNet has got a portfolio of products in this sense, but this particular one we're talking about is the agent on the host collects data. So it doesn't matter whether the person has Netgear or, you know, Eero or, or you know, whatever brand of Wi-Fi or whichever telco they're using, for whether, whether they're at a, at a coffee shop or they're back in the office, you can actually monitor all those connections with one tool. That's right. 
that covers multiple clients, multiple operating systems, any type of network. Um, so it's important that it's uh, vendor independent because our customers depend on, in this world of hybrid cloud, network transformations like SD-WAN of different vendors and different progresses, they need a stable set of performance insight regardless of where their particular network or transformation or even users are. And are you able to correlate data that you might be gathering on the host to other links in the chain? So the ISP, the broader WAN, whether it's a SaaS app, the cloud, uh, an on-prem app, et cetera? We are, and we have uh, customer best practices. So if you have SaaS apps, you are using AppNet to monitor from outside the firewall so you can understand in real time from a given region, was the app up and what was its performance to region. Uh, you're looking at that app also in parallel from your remote offices and data centers so you understand what your infrastructure's impact is on the application's experience. And then with host, Wi-Fi, and the client metrics that we've talked about here today, you've got those all running alongside each other. Essentially, you have the same time series so you can understand anywhere in the service delivery chain and user experience um, what's at fault and, and how you segment that. So that's really the only way that you can get the full IT efficiency that you need in this modern and very complex uh, world. So again, back to that sort of troubleshooting idea, if a user saying I'm having trouble accessing this cloud app, I can immediately check from other perspectives, the cloud app looks fine from this office, this data center, even that user's region. Let's go looking somewhere else. That's right. We have a, an application quality dashboard that can look at that application from multiple vantage points. And then with the tagging, we can overlay business contexts like region, department, um, uh, other location, city, uh, brand. Um, so um, it becomes very important to understand that application's experience uh, across your business. Are you able to provide sort of like best practices now for folks who are working from home so you can sort of start to eliminate the issues of, you know, don't go out on your back porch when you're on a Zoom call because the Wi-Fi signal is going to drop that kind of thing? We are. Uh, we actually have a, a checklist for return to office that uh, that we can share with customers and, um, and prospects. But essentially, you know, it all starts with um, looking at the performance uh, from the best possible perspective. So start with an ethernet connection if you can. Mm. Recognizing that not all of the users have access to an ethernet port, then you start with the best Wi-Fi um, infrastructure that you can. That's most often a mesh network. So um, one of the things that we see, obviously the distributed work, everybody's switching to using voice and video over whatever connectivity they've got. And although unified comms was a big deal five years ago, it's probably not so much of a big deal now that Zoom's come around. But the flip side is quality of the calls and monitoring, say, the conventional tools like Teams and Zoom and so forth that comes up. Is that something that you can get visibility into as well? Because you really need to know if Zoom's not working or Teams isn't working these days. You absolutely do. And from the volume of Zoom status update emails I get on a given day. Uh, I guess you can never be sure that the infrastructure is up at the other end at Zoom, but you do need to have eyes on the end-to-end -end all the way to the client. So one of our customers is a UC service provider. Uh, they're on the hook to deliver reliable voice and video services like Zoom, always on overlay third-party networks. And mm. you can imagine the finger always points at the service provider first, <laughs> when in reality, you know that the issues often occur at the other end. Uh, so in one case, their help desk was triaging a, a user issue where they had seen from their client large spikes in jitter and round trip time, uh, but they didn't know why and where. So classic triage workflow was followed. The app was up in the cloud. They checked the path to the gateway and checked the last mile circuit. Everything looked okay. So there was no packet loss. 
but they saw persistent jitter and round tip time spike. So they focused on the customer's endpoint, found that they were connecting wirelessly, uh, not an automatic disqualifier, but with enhanced metrics from the native monitoring point on their workstation. They learned that the connection was wireless, signal link speed checked out, but airtime showed spikes and airtime indicates congestion uh, elsewhere in the local area Wi-Fi network. So uh, right. typically coincident with jitter and round chip time spikes. So we concluded that another client on the same wireless network was consuming the bandwidth heavily at those times of jitter and RTT spikes. So, well, they're consuming um, the spectral bandwidth, not the wireless bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a difference yeah. there because if it's the, you don't need to, that's a different problem to solve. You can't solve that with a tool like yours because but there's a certain amount of spectrum in the five gigahertz and the signals being transmitted. And if you can't get access to the spectrum because there's a wireless TV or a baby monitor is the old fashioned way of talking about it, using that spectrum, then you can't get the bandwidth. But the diagnosis comes up and says, it's not DNS. It's not the internet connection. It's this. Right. And that gave the customer uh, confidence to, to go and remedy the issue. Yeah. That's one of those things where if a customer isn't telling uh, you know, the help desk, oh, I've also got, you know, a couple of kids at home trying to do remote school and a spouse also working, whatever, and there's a lot of congestion. They could have chased their tails forever without this kind of insight. Common scenario. Yeah, very common. Well, that does bring us to the end of our time. Um, Adam, thank you for joining us. If folks want to find out more, where would you send them? Come visit us online at www.appneta.com slash packet pushers. All right, that's appnetta.com slash packet pushers. Thanks to Appnetta for being a sponsor. Thank you for listening. If you like this show, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.